ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The Northern Territory's buffalo industry faced a number of challenges last year. So how is 2024 shaping up? You'll find out soon. And before 1.30, an insight into the amazing work that's involved in getting roses ready for Valentine's Day. So the actual process for getting them to flower correctly so that they're ready for harvest Valentine's Day actually begins in October of the previous year. And then you're relying on a little bit of luck to not be too early and not be too late. Also today you'll hear from the inaugural chair of the Australian Native Finger Lime Alliance. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Happy Valentine's Day. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you have downloaded the podcast. Indonesians head to the polls today in what is the world's largest single-day election. Up to 200 million people will be voting for a new president to replace Joko Widodo, who has finished his term. And here in Australia, a lot of farmers and cattle producers who trade with Indonesia will be interested to see how this all unfolds. Veterinarian and former boss of the NT Livestock Exporters Association, Dr Ross Ainsworth, he's in Bali today. I spoke to him earlier on about what election day is like in Indonesia. Well, uh, I haven't been outside yet, so but I'm, I'm not expecting it's going to be anything dramatically different in Bali. I don't think they get quite as excited about the elections uh, in Bali as they do uh, in other places. And I've been asking a lot of the uh, the local people I meet. <laughs> in my my hairdresser, <laughs> my barber, he's uh, particularly keen on elections. Just you know how you <laughs> plenty of chat in the barber chair, <laughs> and uh, he he's the one I get most of my mail from. And uh, uh, it was very interesting that initially uh, he was uh, barley tends to be. Uh, uh, generally favourable towards the Megawati's party, PDI. But uh, about a few months ago, when when Prabowo uh, took uh, or arranged through various means to get uh, Jokowi's uh, son as his running mate, virtually everyone I spoke to said, that's it, uh, it's a done deal, he's a shoo-in. Well, yeah, Prabowo has been reported as the favourite in this election, and that's what your barber thinks as well, hey? And everyone else. I have not spoken to one person, and I've asked a lot of people. Uh, I've not spoken to one who didn't agree that Prabowo would be the man. So, Ross, for farmers and cattle producers tuning in who perhaps trade with Indonesia, can you talk us through what the, the best case and worst case scenarios might look like here. Yeah, look, it's uh, I'd have a better chance of predicting what's going on in the US than what's going to be happening here. So, given given that caveat, <laughs> I I don't think it'll be a problem. I see it as probably positive. Prabowo is an entrepreneur, a businessman. He uh, he's a very rich guy. He's been doing business for a long time, and uh, the most positive thing for me is that Jokowi is the best president Indonesia's ever had by a country mile. He was the most honest politician I've ever even heard of, let alone uh, had experience of. Uh, he got things done. He got good things done. He prioritised good things. And uh, he he established lots of uh, agencies uh against corruption, which is their biggest single problem here, in my view, politically. Uh, so when Jokowi allowed his son to run as the deputy for Prabowo, for me, that was the sign of approval of Jokowi. And given the age 
of Proboa. They had to change the constitution to allow Proboa, who was over the age limit, and his son, to be, who was under the age limit, to run for president. Once they changed the law, the constitution, to allow that to happen, that said to me that Jokowi had sanctioned Proboa and by implication that, uh, and uh, you know, this is just my point of view, Yeah. Proboa is 73. So I would say part the way through the first term, if not after the first term, then Proboa will, you know, have some uh, twinges and say he's uh, on health grounds and to spend more time with his family, he will resign and allow the son to become the president. And I reckon that's written in the wind right now. Wow. And so that means to me also that the son, who has extremely limited uh, political experience, will be listening to dad. And Dad's a champion, so I think it's a fantastic result. You're, of course, across the cattle industry in Australia, still waiting for import permits for live cattle and for box beef. What's your thoughts, Ross, on the likelihood of that getting sorted any time soon uh, during this election period? Yeah, no, it won't. It won't be. These things, these things are managed by senior bureaucrats and senior bureaucrats do absolutely nothing during the election cycle. It should have been done well before the election sort of period, but and, and the reasons for that are unclear, although the only thing that I could say in relation to the cattle issues is that it related to all permits, you know, uh, permits for bringing in apples and uh, sheep meat. And uh, it wasn't just cattle. So it, it sort of don't take it personally. It, it, you were just in the list with all the rest of it that was being held up for reasons that you and I will never understand. However, once, once the, uh, the first thing that happens once there's a new president is all the uh, top positions, both political and bureaucratic, are all vacated and all reappointed according to the new boss. In, in uh, once, once Proboa is in the chair, every senior bureaucrat will be gone. You know, sort of they're all heads of departments, uh, director generals, all gone, and his men will be and women will be in place. So I suspect at that time permits will free up. So how long could that process take? Yeah, look, uh, it's, it takes a while to kick out the old and, and bring it because the old ones will just be sitting there uh, um, you know, playing cards because they cannot do anything. So it might take a month. Uh, that, all they'll need is a signature. They'll have the permit written out and and not signed. So when the when the right person sits down in his chair, he will he will be able to get it moving very quickly. Should they decide to, and I suspect, you know, it might be a month, might be a bit longer. So you know, most. Uh, Stations might just have to do uh, do a few breeder rounds before they uh, before they bring in their their sale animals. And so, for those industries impacted by this, I guess their best outcome from today's election is that one person, you know, wins by clear margin, and it doesn't end up. I've got here that you know, if it's too close, there ends up being a runoff held in June. I think that's I think that's right. If that happened, then they'd probably sort the permits out. Okay. Uh, otherwise, you see, the other thing that's going on is Ramadan and uh, I'm not sure of the actual dates, but Ramadan and uh, LeBaron are relatively early in the year and there would be a danger of running out of uh, protein uh, if they don't get them moving. So, And, and that would be a far more serious uh, outcome for the government. If the government runs out of, allows the food to run out, then they'll burn the place down. So... You, you that that won't happen. So somehow they'll get it done, but it might it might dither around for a for another month. And just finally, Ross Ainsworth, in Australia on election day, we have democracy sausages. Any unusual <laughs> traditions in Indonesia on election day? <laughs> the only unusual traditions here is the giving away of gifts to voters. And I'm told that the uh, the standard gift at the moment 
is a uh, hundred thousand rupees, which is uh, ten bucks, and uh, that's that's your sausage. And does that it used c- to be t-shirts, but now I believe it's a uh, a, a, a a a red note. As in, you vote and then you get the note. Uh uh-uh, uh no, no. Oh. you get the note and then then you vote. Does that then come with a caveat on who you vote for? Well, it's implied, mm. and uh, I don't know. I don't know whether anyone checks on it, but uh, that's how it works. Appreciate your insights today. Enjoy election day, Ross. Thank you, and it's, and it's Valentine's Day here as well, of course. I'm not sure how that impacts on the election, but there you go. And as Dr. Ross Ainsworth, who is in Bali today, Indonesians go into the polls, and for those who have been waiting and waiting to get hold of those import permits to be able to send cattle, send box beef, send table grapes to Indonesia. Sounds like you might have to wait a bit longer. G'day, how are you going? It's Leo Skleros here, President of the Northern Territory Mango Industry Association, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yep. So there's no live cattle going to Indonesia at the moment, and there's certainly no buffalo going over there. How is 2024 shaping up for the Northern Territory's buffalo industry? You'll find out next. But first, let's have a song. I just jumped onto the internet and typed in best country love songs, given that it is Valentine's Day. And do you know what the internet's told me? The internet said the greatest country love song of all time is Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, which I'll admit I haven't got a, a copy of this afternoon, so my apologies. But I do have a copy of number two. According to the Billboard, the second best country love song of all time is this one. The Ring of Fire, The Ring of Fire. The second greatest country love song of all time. Sharing that with you on Valentine's Day. And on the text line 0487 1057, someone simply says, more Johnny Cash. Can't disagree with that. Uh, And someone else says, the best songs are the older songs. It's a quarter to one. This is the Country Hour. The Northern Territory's buffalo industry took a bit of a hit last year with export numbers out of Darwin, more than half. So last year, just under 5,000 buffalo were shipped out of Darwin Port, compared to 11,000 head that went out in 2022. Vice President of the NT Buffalo Industry Council, Michael Swart, says there's a number of factors for that drop, and 2024 is also shaping up to be challenging. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a massive dive in the numbers, and... Basically, buffalo get affected worse by things like lumpy skin and when we had the live export ban, it just takes our industry a lot longer to recuperate. So um, we've seen the lumpy skin was one issue we had and then prices being another thing. I mean, buffalo is not an expensive commodity, but cattle has been and, and it's been hard for Indonesia to swallow the price. So we're seeing competition from the Indian frozen buffalo trade, and um, so that slows down the cattle job, which in turn slows down the buffalo job. So what has that meant for buffalo producers over here in the top end? It's had a a very big um, impact. So anybody that normally goes contracting or are trying to turn buffalo off have had a, a very hard time of it. And mainly you'll see things which we haven't seen for a while where you'll go out and muster um, individually animals for the export job and then boats are cancelled or there's no boat so you end up holding animals for a fair period of time. The second impact which we had in 2023 was the abattoir um, changed their price structure for buffalo and they went from a live weight to a hot carcass weight but in the process of doing that they reduce the price back to levels that we haven't seen since 1980 1990 so they they nearly have what they were paying and therefore was unviable for contractors to go mustering so yeah so it's not worth not worth contractors time then obviously to go out and muster yeah. 
yeah, contractors or stations. I mean, any landowners that had buffalo, you you could not go and do buffalo for the meatworks and then um, pull off the better animals for the export job. So, and traditionally, the two work hand in hand really well. Where you know a portion goes to the meatworks and and a very small portion goes export. Um, so yeah, that's probably been you know between that and the export job is what's really knocked our, our live export figures around last year. I have um, tried to be in touch with Rum Jungle Abattoirs there, but do you have any understanding of, of what changed that pricing last year for them? Um, not 100%. I mean, ever since COVID, they've had an issues trying to establish export um, protocols for their, for their product and have dealt mainly, I think, with the domestic trade more than exporting the buffalo meat. And I think that has not um, given them the best result on a return. So so therefore, you know, to, to try and wheel in their costs, they've dropped the price on the purchase. And, and um, of course, that's hurt us as an industry pretty hard. So export numbers are down, but I guess what's the domestic market like here for buffalo? I mean, there's a few going in the South Australia for a trade there, live and then and then um, processed in South Australia. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but that's still only I think it was something like the plan was 80 every six weeks. So that's that's a very small job as well. So really, we we did need that meatworks to be fully functional like the year before. And then you know we last year we could have turned off. 10,000 export and then 10,000 plus to the meatworks. But um, due to those couple of factors, it just didn't happen that way. So where does this leave the buffalo industry, Michael? Yeah, well, it can only get better. (laughs) (laughs) So um, (laughs) um, I think we'll see what the meatworks plans for 2024. But contractors and landowners now know the situation and, and the worst case scenario is they will go and target animals for live export only. So therefore they'll reduce their operational costs and can do that trade. So it'll then come down to the exporters on how many they can sell. And towards the end of 23, you know, they were feeling a little bit more confident than, than what they were um, earlier than that. What needs to happen for the buffalo industry to get back on its feet this year? The meatworks would be the number one, just to get the animals being mustered, our free-range animals, and then and then the exporters to be able to push our product um, into into our traditional markets. That's the Vice President of the NT Buffalo Industry Council, Michael Swart, speaking to Annie Brown and the Country Hour has tried to talk to Run, Rum Jungle Abattoir sorry, uh, about the year ahead and about its pricing. We've had no luck so far. We'll let you know if that changes. How to Relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holiday. Throwing in a line. Great time. Other fish biting. Hard. <laughs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal. Hard. And generally getting teed off. Don't swing too. Hard. How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back to work to relax. The new season of Hard Quiz. Ah! Wednesday nights on ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iView. On the Country Hour this week, we've been talking about two NT cattle stations which have been sold on their potential to produce carbon credits. Maryfield and Limbunya stations are on the market and their main selling point is their future ability to generate about 10.4 million Australian carbon credit units over 25 years. Now, the carbon methodology that those properties are registered for is called human-induced regeneration, HIR. It's a scheme which has its fair share of critics, though. One of the most outspoken is Professor Andrew McIntosh, who is the former chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee. Dan Fitzgerald asks Professor McIntosh for his thoughts on human-induced regeneration projects in northern Australia. I think it's highly problematic. These projects, given where they're located and given how much of the properties have been previously cleared, 
it is very unlikely from a scientific perspective that the amount of carbon that they claim is going to be sequestered in regenerating forests is actually going to occur. Why do you think um, human-induced regeneration, what these projects have been registered with, why do you think that methodology can't work in such a place as northern Australia? Well, the projects are supposed to involve reducing grazing pressure in order to induce regeneration of even-age native forests. Now, 70, 80 years' worth of high-quality science in Australia's rangelands has shown that grazing does not have that sort of effect. Grazing does not have result in a substantial reduction in the amount of tree cover in these areas. In some areas, it can have an acute impact, but they're the exception. The general rule is that grazing either has negligible impact on tree cover or it can actually result in increases in tree cover, which is diametrically opposed to what this project and 470 other projects are claiming is occurring. So if the cattle are taken off some areas of these properties, you don't think there'll be an increase in carbon sequestered? No, there'll be an increase in carbon sequestered in in ground cover, so the grasses and the small shrubs. But that amount of carbon is absolutely tiny compared to what they've been credited for. They've been credited for increases in tree cover, so the amount of biomass or the amount of carbon sequestered in the trees. And in particular, what they're saying is they're going to be regenerating or claiming is how the method works, that even age native forests are going to grow across all the areas that are delineated as the areas where trees are growing. So we're not talking about small numbers of trees. They've been credited on the basis of even age regeneration of native forests across whole areas, even though when these projects start and on these properties, including on these properties, they already already contain large numbers of standing mature trees. Now, anyone, even with the slightest ecological knowledge, will know you can't grow even-age forest under and through an existing woodland. You can't, trees don't grow through existing trees. It does not happen. It cannot happen. These properties, they're being marketed expressly for their carbon potential. What do you think that'll do for land values in northern Australia if that if they get the sort of money that they're after and, and that does continue a trend? I think what's happened here is we've now got 42 million hectares of these projects that are spread across Australia's uncleared rangelands. It's a giant fraud. And one of the terrible consequences of this being allowed and facilitated by the Australian government, it has completely distorted land values across these these rangeland areas. So not just in northern Australia, but already we've seen it in western New South Wales. We've seen it in western Queensland. We've seen it in parts of, of South Australia and and an almost unfathomable area across Western Australia. These projects are now located in the most absurd locations, including in the Nullarbor Plain, which, if you don't know your Latin, Nullarbor literally means in Latin, no trees. So what's going on here is is truly terrible, and the fact that it's distorting agricultural markets is is just another implication of, of a terribly run, and I would say a fraudulently run, scheme. That is Professor Andrew McIntosh from ANU. It should be noted a 2023 independent review into the carbon credit scheme rejected criticisms that it's fundamentally flawed. The Chubb review concluded that the HIR method is sound, particularly as it is administered by a robust regulatory framework. Maryfield and Limbunya up for sale. It is an intriguing story. Now, I wonder if it's raining at your place this afternoon. There's been some big rain out there. A tropical low is developing over the top end, and it is expected to move east towards the Gulf of Carpentaria. Now, according to the Bureau, the Carpentaria coastal rivers over the next few days could expect daily rainfall totals of 50 to 150 millimetres. Isolated heavier falls of up to 200 millimetres are possible from Friday. The Hell's Gate Roadhouse, which is located just 50 kilometres to the east of the Queensland NT border, it's already been cut off by flooding for about three weeks. And now there's more rain on its way. 
The caretakers at that roadhouse are Les and Jen Hill, who say it's been extremely, extremely wet. Roughly from when we came in on uh, mid-December, we're just over 800, 820 mil or something, 850 mil so far. We haven't seen it rise so quick. We've been in a bit of a few of these areas, but we haven't seen the ex-cyclone one. Was, that was quite amazing how everything came up. They come up just fence high. The water was amazing. Ex-cyclone Kiralee and the low associated with that, that's what you're talking about, aren't you? Yep, that's directly over us here and Westmoreland's just up the road from us. So, yeah, they cop more than us. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a lot of rain. Roads being flooded isn't uncommon in the wet, but this seems like it's a heck of amount of water. Can you get anywhere from Hellsgate Roadhouse? No, 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 no. Last time we went out, got out, got out was about three weeks ago. We got out and got down to Doomagee for a little bit of uh, fresh stuff, but we were only down there an hour and the time we came back, Cliftower Creek was up headlight level. By the time we got back in one hour, so uh, yeah, no, we don't we don't go out now, and we can't get down on the station. Station tracks are all they're all they're all wash. That impending low sitting up there in the Gulf is it overcast where you are at the moment? It is. It's overcast and a little bit of drizzle. All the radars and the predictors are all saying we're going to get quite a bit of rain. So we'll see. We'll see what comes. Maybe tomorrow onwards, Friday. They're saying we could expect quite a lot. Yeah, after such extreme storms and the country being saturated, of course, it sort of remains to be seen how high it can go. Is the roadhouse safe? It's on higher ground? The roadhouse is good and the infrastructure on the roadhouse is quite amazing. We have a few little uh, water issues, but nothing compared to uh, other areas. But all the buildings and the surrounds are all up. We've got creeks both sides of us. And they uh, they spread right out. We can see them from our uh, from where we're sitting, just outside the roadhouse. But we'll see how they go this time now because they're all, they're all very wet and still full. So we'll see how it goes. That is Les Hill at the Hell's Gate Roadhouse. Flooded in and more rain to come. There is an initial moderate flood warning in place this afternoon for the Waterhouse River and a flood watch in place for parts of Northwest and Carpentaria coastal rivers. Uh, We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time. If you have a question for the Bureau, send it through on that text line, 0487 1057. It's time for the news now on your ABC, one o'clock. Hello there. My name's Norm Hedditch from Taruna Proprietary Limited and we're Spanish mackerel fishermen in the Northern Territory and you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Happy Valentine's Day. In a moment, you'll hear about the incredible work that goes into making sure roses are ready for Valentine's Day. So the actual process for getting them to flower correctly so that they're ready for harvest Valentine's Day actually begins in October of the previous year. And then you're relying on a little bit of luck to not be too early and not be too late. And tell me, have you tried a finger lime before? A little native treat. I know producer Dan and I went and tracked a few Northern Territory finger limes down. Oh, I feel like that story was a year or so ago. And they're beautiful. Put a few on top of some oysters. It was just beautiful stuff. And, uh, well, our love for finger limes, we're not alone. This is an industry that is on the rise. More and more growers are getting involved in the industry, and now it's got its own sort of peak lobby group. You'll hear from the inaugural chair of the Australian Native Finger Lime Alliance in just a moment. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. There's a lot to talk about. Billy Lynch, good afternoon to you. Uh, First up. Maybe the rainfall figures, the best ones up to 9 o'clock this morning. Yeah, that's a good place to, to start. Um, so across the daily, we've seen sort of 30 to 60 millimetres, fairly widespread. Um, and, you know, the river rising there. Um, the highest falls, well, the highest was Central Plateau um, on the Kakadu Escarpment with 103 millimetres. So that feeds into the South Alligator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other two notable figures were in the Waterhouse. So Upper Waterhouse had uh, 94 
and Dilgen Hill 88, and they're all upstream of Beswick. Yes. And for me, the Victoria River District just keeps jagging decent totals. Bradshaw's had 76. Cooley Bar Cattle Station, 49 in the gauge. Old Delamere's had 23. It's uh, turning into a big wet season for the VRD. Victoria River Crossing, yeah. another 50 millimetres in the gauge there. Uh, this tropical low, Billy, what's it doing? Yeah, it's it's moved into the Gulf of Carpentaria overnight. So it's it's currently the southwest Gulf, um, sort of south of Groot Island, um, north of Borrelula, so that sort of area. Um, and yeah, helping maintain the sort of monsoonal showers and thunderstorms across the, the top end and around around the Gulf. So that's where the low is at the moment, and it's going to be um, slow moving over that sort of southwest Gulf region for the rest of today the rest of thursday probably much of friday as well so continuation of of rainfall across the top end probably a slight easing actually in the next couple of days across the vic river and the daily catchment um, but an increasing rainfall around the Carpentaria coast. Yeah, all the moisture getting sucked towards the Gulf of Carpentaria. And what's the likelihood now that that could develop into a tropical cyclone? Yeah, it's, it's increased a little bit since yesterday. So um, we're saying there's now a 40% chance. Yesterday we we're saying a 30% chance. Yep. Um, so 40% chance of a cyclone by Friday. Um, and... Look, it, it's quite possible that this afternoon we're going to issue tropical cyclone watch f- around parts of the, the Gulf of Carpentaria coastline, um, just for the risk that it might develop into a you know category one cyclone. So, stay tuned. Mm, that will be the first one for the season for the Northern Territory. Uh, yes, it, it will, will be. be. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, everyone around the, the, the Gulf of Carpentaria, um, especially sort of Groot Island and southwards to the Queensland border, um, that's w- and regardless of, I guess, whether it develops into a tropical cyclone, um, we do expect, <coughs> excuse me, we do expect further heavy rainfall and uh, strong and, and squally winds developing. Okay, and let's talk about the Waterhouse river there's an initial moderate flood warning in place for it and it went over beswick bridge yesterday yeah it did it sort of bubbled up over the bridge um yeah yesterday and probably uh also sunday night um yeah given the rainfall that that i mentioned earlier um we're now starting to see some stronger rises and um yeah we've issued a, a flood warning so uh, likely to hit the minor flood warning at Beswick overnight, and um, some of our modelling does have it getting into the moderate range tomorrow. So, um, yep, no doubt the the Arnhem Highway is already yeah. sorry, not the Arnhem Highway, the Central Arnhem Highway is already um, cut, and um, yeah, people in and around Beswick should um, yep take notice. And that catchment could well and truly get some decent rain in the next twenty four hours or so. I'd say so, yeah. It's a fairly small catchment too, so there's yeah, there's certainly going to be the risk of further showers and thunderstorms in the area. The, the flood watch, so that continues for the northwest coastal rivers and, and we've also extended it extended it to the, the Carpentaria coastal rivers, so from the, the MacArthur River uh, across to the Queensland border. Okay, and for those in the Barclay and Central Australia, what would you like them to know? Uh, look, I guess uh, in the short term, um, the Barkley, there's just, you know, slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. Uh, further south, you know, around Alice Springs and Yalara, very hot and dry. Um, but, yeah, I guess for people in the Barkley, um, be aware that this tropical low um, come the weekend is expected to uh, move across the, the northern Barkley and then... Uh, towards probably the northern Tanami over the weekend. So there's going to be an increase in rainfall through those regions over the weekend. I see Alexandria Downs jagged 32 millimetres up to 9 o'clock. Oh, well, that's pretty good. For Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they welcome that. Yeah, yeah. All righty then. Well, thank you very much for the update and we'll keep our eyes peeled this afternoon for that yes. potential first warning. Is that the right language? Uh, watch. Potential watch. cyclone watch this afternoon. Okay. Thank you, Billy. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you.
That's uh, Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. We've got uh, Rowan Sullivan on the line this afternoon. Uh, Rowan's at Cave Creek Station near Matarenka, the Waterhouse River. It goes through the property. How's it all looking at your place this afternoon, Rowan? Oh, yeah, it's pretty wet, Matt. Um, we've been getting about an inch a, inch a day for the last last several days. Um, no sort of mad, like mad, real heavy rain, just um, like for last night. Last 24 hours we had 32 mil and it sort of just drizzled all night. So, um, but anyway, it's keeping everything pretty wet. And how close can the waterhouse get to your place when we see an event like this? Oh, I don't think. Um, well, assuming assuming there's no big, more big rain, um, I'd, we wouldn't have any any trouble with um, with flooding like around our. Um, around their homestead area or anything like that. Um, I mean, it'll come out pretty wide in certain places as it comes down. But, um, you know, if we sort of start getting um, 100, 100 plus sort of falls up the up the catchment, then we'd start to be, be looking at um, more substantial flooding down here, I'd reckon. As a cattle producer near Mataranka, how would you rate the wet season thus far? Well... We were having a really good wet up until about a week or ten days ago, but it's sort of gone a bit mad now. It's, um, but uh, I mean, we we hadn't had any any sort of flooding or anything like that. We'd had enough fine weather to keep to keep doing a bit. So, um, but uh, we've sort of pulled up now. It's um, it's just got a bit too wet. But um, but I mean, we can't complain. We had a, we had an early, well, reasonably early sort of a start in November and. And then we've had um, pretty good rain mm. um, since then, so I can't complain about that too much. And how are you feeling about the year ahead in light of these stories we keep doing about how there's no permits yet to send cattle to Indonesia? Yeah, well, that's sort of dragging on a bit, isn't it? Um, I mean, I and I couldn't offer I couldn't offer any sort of intel on anything I've heard about when they might be coming out. Um, so it's just wait and see, I guess. Um, yeah. It's, um, I don't know if you heard Dr. Ross earlier on, but yeah. No, I didn't hear Dr. Ross. His, no. um, his, in summary, I guess he just felt with the election on today and what did he say? The old bureaucrats will just be playing cards. He can't see anything getting signed off for at least a month, maybe more. Oh. Right, and yeah, um, fair dinko. Well, I, I was sort of hoping maybe next week or something. Once it all got, once the result of this first round is is known, but um, yeah, that's a bit sort of disappointing. Mm. Anyway, yeah, well, <laughs> anything could happen. I think so. Alrighty, well, um, um, I hope the wet season treats you well. You're probably not the first cattle producer who's told us in the last week or so that this monsoon's a bit miserable and they wouldn't mind <laughs> well, a bit of blue sky. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's sort of just we we did have a monsoonal burst, and, and we, you know those of us who watch the MJO have seen it sort of go over into the Pacific, and um, and according to um, conventional wisdom, we should be in a sort of a monsoon break now, but um, that hasn't happened. So anyway, no doubt the Met Bureau will have some sort of explanation for us at some stage. <laughs> I'll let you be. Have a have a nice afternoon. Thanks for your time, Rowan. Right, cheers, Matt. See you. Appreciate it. There we go, Rowan Sullivan. He's out at Cave Creek Station this afternoon near Mataranka. There's a tropical low in the north, and there's a 40% chance of it turning into a cyclone in the Gulf in the next sort of what 24, 48 hours. Make sure you stay up to date via the bureau's website and, of course, the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. G'day, I'm Angus Kidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. Producer Dan, do you remember that time we went and got Northern Territory-grown finger limes and put them onto some oysters? Ah, that was living, living. Uh, if you're tuning into the country out this afternoon, I wonder if you've tried a few finger limes. This is an industry that is on the up. Demand for finger limes is booming. There's a growing number of farmers now getting involved in this industry. And there's now a national industry body to represent them. 
chair of the newly formed Australian Native Finger Lime Alliance is Jade King. She's a finger lime grower and a Nuffield scholar. She spoke to Jennifer Nichols about the need to have an industry group. We've got a massive amount of interest across growers, quite a number of growers that even I didn't realise were out there um, and more and more are getting in contact. So they've received their launch email today and hopefully they share it amongst their contacts and networks and then we'll build it up from there. I know I've just sent it out to over 50 different growers across Australia and then also to different research bodies that we are affiliated with as well. Just how special is this fruit? I think it's the most unique and special fruit in the world. I really do believe that from this crazy prickly bush to these exquisite little finger limes inside the bush and then you open them and you've got this citrus caviar that bursts out and it's not just the flavour, it's the experience and it makes it entirely unique in comparison to any other citrus in the world and all of those things together makes it really Now, you were awarded a Nuffield scholarship to investigate finger limes internationally. What did you find? Well, first I found out we didn't have the biggest growers in the world. That was really quite a shock to me. And that was in Guatemala. They are the largest growers in the world so far. Numbers of trees, over 20,000. But on that trip also, I've done Spain and France. I've noticed that whilst they're growing them, there's that lack of knowledge about what to do with them. The markets are still developing. The research hasn't quite been done. And that's where, as Australia, we are ahead of that that game. And I think with this industry body, we can certainly increase that knowledge. I'm actually working on a project with UQ at the moment regarding finger limes and their structural integrity over storage periods. So there's a whole heap of research now coming out and more people wanting to do research and also growers' knowledge. It's an incredibly vast amount out there where people have over the last 30 years worked with this crop and worked out different methods methods uh, and what's best and what's not. So as part of the Nuffield Scholarship, I'm bringing that all together and trying to determine the best management practices agronomically for pest management, everything across the board. Is the market flooded for finger limes in Australia already? I suppose some people would say that. However, you can't really flood a market that's not fully established. So the market's still growing and the market avenues are still growing. I don't think I want to stop this quest until I can see finger limes in a 100 gram punnet right there beside blueberries, strawberries and raspberries. They're all very similarly priced. And I think that needs to happen sooner than later for the finger lime industry. And as a body together, we can actually make that happen. I know that the supermarkets need to pick it up. It needs to be more than just the restaurants and more than just the high end. I want to see the average Australian buying finger limes at their shop, bringing them home and mixing them through a salad and utilising them in obviously gin and tonic and across their desserts. I know that young kids absolutely love finger limes just eating them and that's been a surprise for me because as a kid I love sweets. So to see that kids really seem to love just eating finger limes directly as a sour fruit, it's quite an interesting concept there. You go into shops at the moment and you can start seeing finger limes being introduced in so many different ways such as kettle chips. They've got a finger lime flavour in that. There's a finger lime and mango yogurt which was really quite fascinating and kombucha and all sorts of things they're actually starting to have that finger lime flavor introduced how much enthusiasm have you got from the people you've reached out to so far Uh, i've had a lot of support and a lot of enthusiasm from different growers just the board itself has been an amazing group of people that are really passionate about trying to make sure that we maintain that provenance of our fruit. Also looking at how we can increase our production and the markets for it and sort of, I suppose, lead it in Australia. And the enthusiasm's just amazing. Given that there's already so much more production overseas, has the horse bolted in us determining the future of finger limes in an international scale? I don't believe so because it's like most products. Australia produces 
first quality products. They are the best in the world in a lot of our horticulture. And I foresee that finger limes are going to be very much the same. We produce the best and our industry is way more developed than the rest of the world. Whilst they're growing them over there, they haven't got the right varieties yet. They're still looking into the marketing area, whereas we've got producers here that don't just deal with fresh fruit. They're doing cosmetics. They're doing powders, dried fruit. It's such an expansive industry and definitely there's room to grow. That is Jade King, the new, the first Australian Native Finger Lime Alliance Chair. She was speaking to Jennifer Nichols, and I can't believe that Guatemala is the world's biggest producer of Australian finger limes. Pick up the March issue of Gardening Australia magazine for expert advice on growing bulbs. See inspiring garden makeovers, five ways to create a veggie bed, and learn about she-oaks and mid-season apples. And in Organic Gardener, small gum trees for urban gardens, tips for success with garlic, plus attract wildlife to your backyard and the key to healthy soil. Gardening Australia and Organic Gardener, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. It is 23 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Happy Valentine's Day. If you're looking to buy a rose or maybe receive a rose, there's a fair chance it will have been imported. That's just the reality of it these days. But there are some Aussie farmers who are growing local roses. You just need to keep your eyes peeled for them. And for those farmers, this is a hectic time to get roses ready in time for Valentine's Day. These farmers are often harvesting two months' worth of crop in just seven days. Larissa Smith dropped by to see this all unfold with grower Steve Klimek. We're standing here in the greenhouse. It's a very pleasant 30-odd degrees in here at the moment. And we're just having a look at some of the rows of red roses that have been pruned off for Valentine's Day. Been completely cleaned out, I should say. Completely, completely cleaned out. row that we're standing in front of here has maybe two stems left to go out of uh, hundreds of plants. You've got some other colours along here, though. Does everyone choose red or they're happy to go with a white or an apricot? We do sell a lot of colours as well. The pressure goes on the red varieties, yeah, red roses, because that's just what you know, Valentine's Day has been associated with. And unlike some other crops, we can't just magically plant more to satisfy the, the need. So the actual process for getting them to flower correctly so that they're ready for harvest for Valentine's Day actually begins in October of the previous year Um, and then just prior to Christmas we go through with a strategic plan of uh, pruning and pinching in order to force the crop to arrive just at the right time and then you're relying on a little bit of luck to not be too early and not be too late. That must be a challenge because the last few weeks it's been reasonably warm. It has and so we, we make modifications you know, during the, the growing by adding more and, and less irrigation to, to modify that up. Uh, in the greenhouse environment as well, we also shade the greenhouses and if needs be, we, we top that shading up in order to just damp down the growth. Uh, and on different years, it's the other way around where we, you know, we need to remove some shading in order to accelerate the growth. So it's really a matter of working with, with each season and seeing what you can uh, modify to do that. And keeping records from from each year as to to what worked, what didn't work, yeah, whether you were too early or or too late. What variety is this one here? This one here is Explorer, um, and the other one is Adrenaline. And in one of the other houses, we grow Red Naomi and Bordeaux. All these varieties are specific cut flower varieties, so completely different than what you would find in a garden centre or for the home garden. 
because the characteristics that we're looking for in cut flowers is different to that uh, you would see in a normal garden. These plants here will throw stems that are 70, 80, 90 centimetres long, yet in all reality the actual bushes are 15 or 20 centimetres tall. So they're actually quite short little plants. Yeah, in a garden situation you'd end up with these massive long stems on tiny little plants which are you know, not great for appreciating at our eye level, it would be well beyond. Do you feel there has been a shift towards buying local since the pandemic? I think it's allowed people the opportunity to evaluate local product compared to imported product, particularly in our industry. But even, I would say, in most areas of agriculture, the, the consumers are getting information now that allows you to make a more informed decision about what the trade-offs are from a local product compared to an, to an imported product. And consumers speak by opening their wallets and, and spending money on local rather than imported product. That is Steve Klimek from Premier Roses in northern Tasmania. It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards. Of all the latest prices out of Dublin, South Australia, here's Elsie Adamo. Numbers increased marginally as agents offered 360 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was extremely mixed this week with more two-score cattle on offer. The usual trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers provided reasonable competition. Vila steers and heifers eased 10 cents per kilogram as steers sold from 288 to 312 cents, with heifers selling from 200 to 290 cents per kilogram. Yielding steers and heifers sold generally firm for type and condition, with steers selling from 250 to 318 cents, with heifers making 238 to 272 cents per kilogram. Grown steers sold from 220 to 322 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 240 to 290 cents per kilogram. Medium cows sold from 170 to 250 cents, as heavy cows sold from 214 to 240 cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from 100 to 240 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in again for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Elsie. Just quickly regarding tomorrow's country hour, we will be broadcasting between 12.30 and 1.30, but if you normally listen via the old-fashioned radio, then be aware you'll be whisked away to the women's test match cricket between Australia and South Africa. If you want to catch us tomorrow, you'll need to do so via the stream, the listen app, the podcast, that sort of thing. I'll see you tomorrow. Keep it rural.